welcome to podcast number 13, which is part four of a four-part series entitled Autocracy or Democracy, Time to Choose. I'm Gloria Lapata-Prosperi, and you are listening to Counter Voices. Autocracy versus Democracy, Time to Choose, is divided into four parts because of the complexity of the subject matter and to provide relevant research and references on the topic. Today, part four will deal with the role of education in a democracy, marginally educated citizens, opportunities of worth, that me monster, narcissism, geopolitical implications, and keeping our democracy alive. The four podcasts are guided by Dr. Jorge Prosperi, author of Trances Braids, the originator of the website diversitythreads.com, and of the podcast Counter Voices. Dr. Prosperi's research and writing span some 50 years as an educator, workshop facilitator, consultant, and researcher, focusing on the social, cultural, political constructs and agencies, as well as addressing multi-generational trauma with a focus on providing knowledge, historical context, and, as he constantly emphasizes, trying to provide us with relevant language. Welcome, Jorge. It's been a sincere pleasure to present this series. And hopefully, we have provided some insights on not only the ideology of an autocracy and autocrats, but also our responsibilities as citizens living in a democracy. Now, before we begin, I'd like to ask you about an emphasis that you place on language. You stress the relevance and power of language as a major goal of all of your work. Why is that? Why the emphasis on language? Well, Let me begin by stating that I am a humble student of the power and influence that language has on all human life. Language is one of the marvelous human facilities made available by our incredibly complex brain that all too often is taken for granted. Now imagine each child throughout millenniums born with the inherent ability to learn any language from the first day of birth. I find this human capacity mind-blowing, beyond amazing, and it begins as infants. Also, all languages are pathways to knowing and understanding the culture of past and present societies. Let me quote Toni Morrison, a master in the use, meaning, and purpose of language, and regrettably, an author that has been banned in some school districts. The following Morrison quote is on the title page of our website. Quote, There is no time for despair, no place for self-pity, no need for silence, no room for fear. We speak, we write, we do language. That is how civilizations heal. Toni Morrison. I would add language defines who we are. Think of President Obama and Donald Trump and how each of them uses language. After listening to each of these men, what are we left with? What knowledge, choices, and challenges do they provide us as citizens through their language? Who among the two asked us to selflessly, selflessly value, include, and respect each other as citizens and human beings? Who asked us to selfishly dismiss, divide, and hate each other? 
How will the history of the language they use define each of these men? I recently heard it mentioned that we should not only speak with eloquence, but that we should also listen with eloquence. I'm still pondering the depths of that quote. Sorry for the length of the answer, Gloria, but you asked a highly complex and relevant question directly connected to our topic today. That is, coming to terms with the language of an autocracy versus the language of a democracy. So then, I think it's safe to say that while words have power, language has consequences. And in previous podcasts, you mince no words in stating that Republican Trumpism has all of the trappings of an autocracy and a direct threat to democracy. We are far, far beyond mincing words, Gloria far beyond trying to find polite synonyms for what is a blatant autocratic ideology known as Republican Trumpism, which is the opposite of American democracy. I've recently heard the question that is echoed by many Republicans, and that is, does the Republican Party exist in 2024? And if it does, what does it stand for? The Republican Party in 2024 is no longer the party of the past. It is unrecognizable and perhaps now undefinable. It seems as if Republican Trumpism is not a political party but has become a mania, a fixation, a cult. In other words, it has the trappings of an autocracy. Well, then how do students deal with the duality of a party that only exists in name only? Well, we need to stop pretending, stop making excuses for the flagrant attacks on democracy, and focus on the language and actions because one reflects the other. An autocracy is a constant attack on the truth, built on extremism and a pathological obsession to achieve absolute power at all cost, and maintain that power at all cost. As citizens of a democracy, we need to call out the language and also scrutinize actions and behavior of politicians who speak and act as autocrats. We as citizens are the ones who examine and approve the messages and actions before voting by way of two major fundamental principles, credibility and trust. I've noticed that you also emphasize a key component of knowing the differences between an autocracy and democracy is education. Can you please expand on this? Yes, education should be the primary key component in defining, mentoring, and protecting our democracy. An educated citizenry seeks validated knowledge of the past and present that can deter ignorance misinformation, lies, prejudices, and predispositions. Well, then how do we as a country make democracy a central focus of our educational process? Learning about citizenship and democracy should be the central theme as a graduation requirement, and the learning should not stop after graduating from high school. Our citizenship as adults only becomes more relevant and real given the power of our vote. Well, even though you are an educator, you still blame the educational system in some of your writings as having failed our citizens. Why this accusation? It's a painful accusation and reality. 
As far as teaching citizenship within a democracy, our educational system has failed us. I don't want to sound smug or condescending, but at best, we leave high school and college as marginally educated citizens, and therefore easy prey for autocrats to promote an autocracy. Let me be clear. I'm not saying marginally educated regarding our professions, our occupations, but marginally educated as citizens about our citizenship and democracy. You haven't been shy about casting fault on America's educational system, lacking accountability, and, I may add, not just public schools. And let me quote you. We let the Founding Fathers down regarding their expectations and our responsibilities in valuing, mentoring, and protecting our citizenship, and, in turn, our democracy. Why, then, do you take such an adamant stand? Well, as you stated, I blame all schools, not just public. This includes private, independent, boarding, faith-based, single-gender, and homeschooling. Colleges have also failed us, be they private, public colleges, even the Ivy Leagues included, along with colleges of education that are preparing future educators. We go through 12 years of school without emphasizing and focusing on citizenship and its connections to our democracy. By senior year, American history becomes blurred chapters lacking context, with students facing a different curriculum from district to district, from school to school, from classroom to classroom, a jumbled mishmash of what it means to be an educated American citizen. So what do you think is a solution to what you call being marginally educated citizens on citizenship? Well, my belief is that we need to build a national educational process from pre-K through college that maps citizenship and democracy as a major, a major vision and mission throughout the curriculum, which includes, by the way, all subjects even visual and performing arts, as well as athletics. That should be our highest unified goal as a democratic society in the 21st century. How do we keep an autocracy and autocrats at bay if we don't have relevant knowledge, the history, the context, and the tools? So it seems that what you're asking for is that all citizens living in a democracy, at a minimum, become astutely aware that living in a democracy comes with responsibility and accountability. Yes, and awareness is a powerful first step. But then awareness must turn into a credible belief, and that belief into action. We need to take ownership of the meaning of what it means to live in a democracy. Does American democracy only mean getting a job, hoarding stuff, cluttering our lives with stuff and more stuff, consuming natural resources, with the consequence of our planet becoming a waste disposal, a national garage sale? Or should we as citizens be focused on the quality, the quality of our lives, its value and opportunities of worth? And not just for some, but for all. I noticed just now that you mentioned the concept of opportunities of worth rather than only opportunities. 
Can you expand on the value you place on the concept of worth? Well, from my perspective, an opportunity is not an opportunity unless it has elements of worth. Let me provide some examples. The opportunity for all American children to attend school is a most worthy public opportunity. But that opportunity needs to have merit and be equitable to all students. We know that the opportunity of education has greater worth for greater worth for some and not for others as it relates to facilities, class size, counseling, technology, and curriculum. We could also debate the opportunities of worth regarding women's rights and equity or opportunities of worth regarding employment or the worth of America's health care for its citizens or the worth of the right to vote, the worth protected and made available without obstructions and barriers. Likewise, our citizenship and our democracy provides opportunities of worth to enhance the quality of our personal lives. And you also write that the vote is really the power of choice and that voting literally bestows over power to legislators that can enhance or suppress the worth of the equality of our lives of citizens. Yes, we hand over power and control with our vote. Elected legislators are bestowed with the power to either become a catalyst enhancing the quality of our lives as citizens or obstruct and deny opportunities of worth. This is why I believe that a democracy challenges each of us before we vote to look beyond ourselves. Our vote echoes far beyond our personal circumstances and zip codes. A primary value and worth of living in a democracy is recognizing that our citizenship is intertwined with our humanity that binds all of us. The language used to describe autocrats is self-centered, narcissistic, pathological liars, hateful, bitter, selfish, mean-spirited, dysfunctional, and psychologically damaged human beings. Are such descriptions of autocrats exaggerations? No, not at all. The first three podcasts on this topic provided the historical validation for such definitions. It's history that defines, identifies, and provides such descriptors. Autocrats are currently out in the open, telling us who they are in the present tense, unashamedly and openly publicizing their lies and showing us their fraudulent schemes, articulating anti-democratic extremist language and actions. To answer your question directly, Autocrats historically have demonstrated a pathological narcissistic personality that I call the self-serving me monster. So you use the term me monster to emphasize the narcissism that you say is a central trait of an autocrat and a major component of an autocratic ideology. Can you expand on this, please? Yes, narcissism is a component of an autocracy and autocrats. My understanding by way of the American Psychiatric Association, the American Psychological Association, the National Association of Social Workers, and the American Psychoanalytic Association is that a diagnosis of narcissism 
requires five or more symptoms and traits. I think it's important to mention that you emphasize to citizens to do their own research in order to identify traits and system uh, symptoms, excuse me, of current politicians in office, running for office, or a political party that fits such a pathology. That's correct. Citizens should identify politicians in office or running for office who demonstrate narcissistic personality traits and characteristics. Allow me to share some narcissistic traits. Number one, the person has a grandiose sense of self-importance that requires constant, excessive admiration, a constant stream of attention, approval, and recognition. Number two, an autocrat is preoccupied with fantasies or unlimited success, delusions of grandeur, being recognized as superior, and takes credit for the success of others. Number three, shows arrogance, comes across as conceited with pompous behavior or attitudes, always wanting to be the center of attention. Number four, is envious, jealous, and spiteful of others who have earned legitimate public respect, admiration, and affection, shows no semblance of humility. Number five, narcissistic expects special favors of others to do their bidding without questioning. Number six, takes advantage of others to get what they want, will exploit others to achieve their own ends. Seven, has a sense of deserved entitlement and privilege to treat others unfairly. Number eight, believes that laws, rules, and norms don't apply to them. Before you move on to number nine, excuse me, but I think that number eight is significant given the current political reality. What do you say to diehard believers that the politicians they favor, even though found guilty of fraud, libel, or misdemeanors, think of themselves to be above the law? Again, this gets into the analysis of absolute thinking and the willingness to believe and support an individual through blind faith, regardless of validated proof to the contrary. I would caution citizens and remind them that loyalty should be earned, not force-fed or demanded. Okay, thank you for that. Please continue. Well, number nine, a narcissist has difficulty managing their emotions and behavior when confronted with validated facts that expose guilt or wrongdoing. Number 10, lacks empathy, has an inability or unwillingness to recognize or identify with the feelings and needs of others. Well, personally, I feel that the capacity to feel and demonstrate empathy should be a major trait in a leader, given the number of issues and events that deal with tragedies that leave citizens feeling hopeless and desperate. I could not agree more. It's the trait that I believe most parents try to model and teach, and I believe is core to our humanity and living in a democracy. Well, to continue with number 11, a narcissist has difficulty handling criticism, does not apologize or take responsibility for their actions. Number 12, reacts with contempt by belittling other people to make themselves appear superior. Number 13, demonstrates a manipulative behavior to be in control, to impress and or exploit 
self-serving outcomes. 14. Withdraws from or avoids situations in which they they may fail. And 15. Finally, hides feelings of insecurity, shame, humiliation, and fear of being exposed as a failure and a fraud. So what you're asking listeners to do is to identify current politicians or politicians running for office that reflect such narcissistic tendencies and to do this before voting. But let me push back a little bit. The average citizen is not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and we don't have psychological assessments regarding the mental health of candidates or members of a political party. Well, you're right, but we do have verifiable documented history, and we hear the language and witness behavior of candidates and their political party on a daily basis. We have a tsunami of videos, tweets, Facebook accounts, documents, court findings, evidence, and facts, and each citizen can do their own fact-finding. We live in the 21st century. Autocrats can't hide. These connivers and charlatans are on the record, some under oath and some fearing and refusing to testify in public and under oath. Why? Why not comply with subpoenas and testify in public under oath? Why take the Fifth Amendment rather than answer questions in public under oath? You see, it's easy to spew lies on X, Truth, Social, or a friendly cable network, but it all becomes tangibly real upon testifying in a court of law, in front of a judge, in front of a jury, under oath. But as citizens of a democracy, as voters, we are the jury listening and weighing the evidence on a daily basis. And with our vote, we, as citizens, determine the verdict. So, with everything that you've studied, do you believe the personality of an autocrat always coincides with the ideology of an autocracy? I think so. As both the person and the ideology are intertwined, lest we forget that an autocracy is a pathology of causes and effects, using the psychology of emotions to drive absolute radical extreme thinking and behavior, such as deceit, hatefulness, bitterness, revenge, and violence. So tell us again, how do we as citizens determine who is an autocrat? As citizens, we use the power of observation. We become astute, if I may, qualitative researchers. We fact check and pursue the truth. We decode language and witness behavior and tensions. We identify the enablers and supporters and what they represent. We pay attention to the autocratic language of resentment and bitterness that is ever-present with the emphasis on pessimism and cynicism. We become aware of autocrats that promote the politics of grievances meant to exhaust and fatigue citizens without providing realistic solutions. You also mentioned to listen critically to the language politicians use. For example, is the language condescending, pandering, or based on generalities? What should citizens be doing to assure credibility and trust? We should ask critical probing questions. For example, is there any semblance of hope in autocratic language and actions? 
Is there any language in action in an autocracy focused on enhancing the quality of life for each citizen, regardless of party affiliation? Is the message inclusive or exclusive? Does it unify or divide? Who is invited to the table of discourse and who is left out by design? Who are the obstructionists and dividers? In contrast, who is asking for unity, proactive collaboration, compromise, and consensus? We use our common sense, our emotional intelligence, and our conscience, our sense of morality, and focus on the ethics of intentions, decisions, and actions of right and wrong. So while your articles and podcasts warn Americans of the dangers that an autocracy poses to the United States, can you also speak to how an autocratic America will impact other democratic countries? Yes, our vote also determines our national security. The geopolitical complexities of our world is not a video game or a reality TV show. Global tensions and conflicts are real and a matter of life and death on a daily basis. Leadership matters, and it needs to be mature, experienced, knowledgeable, astute in geopolitical foreign affairs, level-headed, and collaborative with allies. American citizens need to educate themselves regarding the complexities of our world. I think what we're witnessing with the war in Ukraine and in Israel are prime examples of this. Yes, we have witnessed Russia mercilessly invade Ukraine and autocratic countries coming to the aid of Russia against Ukraine. The turmoil between Israel and Hamas and Gaza involves not only Israel and Palestine, but Iran, Qatar, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, Turkey, Egypt, as well as European democracies and autocracies such as Russia, China, and North Korea. Keep in mind that autocrats tend to support other autocrats forming alliances. Autocrats model and admire other autocrats and favor their goals, and most important, they worship their absolute power. Well, it seems that what you're asking American citizens to do is to keep one eye on the United States of America and another on the global political matrix, which can be a big challenge. Yes, and geopolitical matrix has always been a daunting task for Americans. That is, to remain focused on America's influence in the world and, in turn, how the actions of other countries impact the United States and its allies. There are major world organizations that autocrats, foreign and domestic, try to dismantle that are crucial to maintaining peace and protect human rights. I assume you're referring to NATO and the UN. Absolutely. The United Nations was founded in 1945 and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, known as NATO, founded in 1949, both after World War II. The, US, the United States led the way in creating both organizations. American citizens should know these organizations not only by name, but their history and current functions in keeping autocratic nations in check so that countries can remain sovereign, prevent conflict, negotiate peace treaties, and prosecute crimes against humanity. Autocrats favor 
isolation and separation, but neither is an option. Never was. Well, you paint a reality that is not only complex, but also highly dangerous, but not recognized as such by many Americans, it seems. Can you speak to the dangers that exist? The reality and truth is that we live in a highly complicated and tangled world. I think of our geopolitical world as a global web with strands of democracies, autocracies, constitutional monarchies, dictatorships, and republics all connected. When one of the strands of that web begins to quiver, all other strands feel the reverberations. Like it or not, we are all connected and will continue to be. Aside from this, keep in mind that there are currently nine countries with nuclear weapons. The United States and Russia possess roughly 90% of these weapons, followed by France, China, England, Pakistan, India, Israel, and North Korea. I dread the global cataclysmic consequences of irresponsible and incompetent leaders who may use nuclear weapons to remain in power. I saw the movie Oppenheimer and thought it provided a harsh glimpse of the moral and ethical questions and backstories that nuclear weapons impose on all of us as to the destruction of millions of lives, while at the same time jeopardizing the natural environment and impacting the lives of future generations with long-term catastrophic results and consequences. And that devastation has now been multiplied. The war heads on just one. Just one nuclear-armed submarine has seven times the destructive power of all bombs dropped during World War II, including the two atomic bombs dropped on Japan. This should be a sobering thought to keep in mind when we vote. Who do you want to be in control of such power and choices? Well, do you think that these facts have seriously been considered by citizens when they vote? As a benevolent skeptic, I believe that most American citizens want a leader who is sane, responsible, competent, and will make rational decisions. We must vote for courageous leaders who will provide honesty and transparency, even when delivering news that is politically unpopular and uncomfortable. I believe citizens want to know the truth. You also state that an autocracy is the antithesis of a democracy, and the two should be constantly compared and contrasted by all citizens. After dealing with the pandemic and loss of jobs and deaths and the challenges that it caused, along with the daily grind and busy lives of citizens, I'll ask once again, aren't you asking for the impossible? Do you think you're being realistic asking citizens to make time to do their homework regarding their citizenship? Yes, that is my expectation, absolutely. This is what we must demand of each other. I do not apologize for asking fellow citizens to address our civic responsibilities. Regardless of our social, cultural, economic status, despite our job title, ethnicity, religion, race, religion, and zip code, we as adult citizens must mentor and protect our citizenship and the power of choice, the power of the vote. That process needs to become a daily proactive habit 
not by happenstance, every two or four years. So what are some major considerations all citizens need to keep in mind before voting? We need to remember the struggles, the struggles to keep democracy alive. We need not only to remember but embrace the guiding principles that Americans have fought for since 1776, fought for and died for during those painful years of our Civil War, a civil war that was a choice between validating a people's humanity or the choice to continue to dehumanize human beings, fought for so women could have the right to vote, fought for during World War II to defeat Nazism, fought for to realize the Civil Rights Acts of the 1960s, fought for so that all citizens could have access to voting rights without obstruction, fear, and intimidation. The history of each struggle is a constant reminder of our ethical and moral responsibilities as citizens. Our vote defines who we are, our beliefs, our ideology, and the way we choose to live. Well, Jorge, as we come to the end of this podcast, what is your final message to our listeners as fellow citizens? I would share with them that a democracy is not about a wannabe king or a me monster or a political party built on fear, lies, paranoia, and criminality. But rather, a democracy is about, is about our constitution, rule of law, and the will of the people as citizens, all of us, not just some of us. I believe, heart in hand, that there is a selflessness required to live within a democracy. A democracy challenges us to realize that we are not only human beings by name, but calls on us to pursue the essence of our humanness. In contrast, an autocracy is a yoke of doom and gloom. It is the burden and a constant state of depression. An autocracy suppresses and enslaves rather than liberates and empowers. Imagine, imagine our lives empowered to pursue opportunities of worth, making what is said to be impossible possible without the needless obstructions. The power of each voice, each choice, each vote can literally determine the value, worth, and quality of our lives and that of our children in the 21st century. Well, thank you for that. That was really very powerful. And now we are coming to an end of part four of Autocracy versus Democracy with Dr. Prosperi's challenge to each of us to do our civic duty and due diligence as citizens. That is, make time and put forth the effort to scrutinize candidates and political party ideology because the outcomes and consequences of the power endowed is a matter of choice. It's been a sincere pleasure to extend the conversation on this subject, and I urge our audience to go to diversitythreads.com to become familiar with the complex dimensions of diversity, equity, and inclusion. On the website, there are articles specifically focusing on autocracy and democracy. As always, sincere thanks to Alan Contino, executive producer and chief engineer of Delirium Networks, 
and to Nancy Gage and Anthony Baez for the graphic designs on the website and podcast. And lastly, our thanks to each of you for joining us. I'm Gloria Lapata Prosperi, and you have been listening to Counter Voices.